Welcome to the podcast for the February issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here, and this month I'm joined by TLN editor Helen Frankish to discuss some of the issue highlights. Helen, welcome, and let's start with a research article. Helen, welcome, and let's start with a research article. An interesting-looking paper. This concerns the potential of fluoxetine, better known as Prozac, the antidepressant, to potentially improve motor function after stroke. What's the thinking behind this study, Helen? Many patients who have had a stroke can experience some degree of weakness or paralysis after the event. And a few small clinical trials have suggested that serotonin reuptake inhibitors such as fluoxetine might have a beneficial effect on motor recovery after a stroke. And the FLAME study in this issue aimed to test whether three months of treatment with fluoxetine given early after a stroke could enhance patients' motor recovery. Thanks, Helen. And just go on and summarise the methods, if you would. And I'm also interested in the scale used to actually measure motor function after stroke. So nearly 120 patients from nine stroke units in France who had a moderate or severe ischemic stroke within the past five to ten days were randomly assigned to receive either fluoxetine or placebo in addition to standard physiotherapy for 90 days. And the primary endpoint was the change between baseline and 90 days in a scale called the Fugel-Mayer Motor Scale Score, or FMMS, which is a score that is widely used in practice to assess motor recovery after stroke. Thanks, Helen. And go on and uh, outline the key results. So the main finding was that the patients who were treated with fluoxetine showed better motor recovery at three months when compared with patients who received placebo. So the improvement in FMMS at 90 days was 34 points in the fluoxetine group compared with 24 points in the placebo group. And when the researchers looked at the different components of the FMMS score, Improvement was seen in the scores for both the upper and the lower limbs. And patients who were treated with fluoxetine were less likely to be depressed than those who received placebo. But when the results were adjusted for the difference in depression between the two groups, the difference in motor score was still statistically significant. It's really interesting. And why do we think these results have occurred? And let's just go back to something you said earlier on about um, the possible neuroprotective effect mm. then of SSRIs. Mm. Well, the reason why fluoxetine improves motor function isn't known, unfortunately, but the results of basic science studies suggest that its neuroprotective effects might be due to its anti-inflammatory action, or alternatively, it could promote long-term potentiation and facilitate relearning after a stroke in humans. So what do the authors and the comment authors, we've got a comment alongside the article, what do they conclude? Well, the authors point out that fluoxetine is well tolerated and it's off patent now, so it's relatively cheap. However, both the authors and comment authors point out that although the results are promising, They are preliminary and further studies in larger groups of patients with a wider range of neurological impairment after stroke are needed. Next, Helen, another research article, and this is looking at traumatic brain injury and hypothermia, hypothermia, the cooling of the brain. This topic isn't new to The Lancet. I'm I'm familiar with a a few studies we've published. So what's the very specific clinical issue being looked at here? So, as you say, this study is looking at whether therapeutic hypothermia can improve outcome in patients who have a severe brain injury. And previous studies of hypothermia treatment for brain injury 
have provided conflicting results, possibly because of the differences in trial design. And the authors of this study hypothesised that the reason why previous studies didn't show a positive result was because patients weren't cooled quickly enough. So in this study, they aimed to assess whether very early induction of hypothermia could improve outcome. And so patients were enrolled into the study within two and a half hours of the injury. Got it. So rapid cooling Mm. is the key thing here. Thanks, Helen. I know the the methodology is a little bit complex, but do summarise it if you can. So it had a two-stage randomisation design and in the first stage patients were randomised either during transport to the hospital or in the emergency room to cooling to 35 degrees C or to normothermia. And this was because at this stage it wasn't possible to fully assess patients for their um, eligibility for the trial and temperatures below 35 degrees C have been shown to be associated with greater mortality in patients with multiple trauma. And once patients' trauma assessment had been completed, a second set of exclusion criteria were applied. Thanks very much, Helen. And go on and tell us about the key findings. So in total, 232 patients were initially randomised to either brain cooling or to normothermia. And after the second set of exclusion criteria were applied, 97 patients uh, remained in the study. And the mean time for patients to reach 35 degrees C was 2.6 hours and to 33 degrees C it was 4.4 hours. And the primary endpoint was outcome on the Glasgow Coma Scale at six months. But unfortunately there was no significant difference between the two groups in this primary outcome. So outcome was poor in 60% of patients in the hypothermia group and 56% of patients in the normothermia group. There was also no difference in mortality between the groups and 23% of patients in the hypothermia group compared with 18% of patients in the normothermia group died. And in a subgroup analysis, the researchers found that in patients who had surgical removal of the hematoma, treatment with hypothermia led to improved outcomes compared with normothermia. And those who had diffuse brain injury and were treated with hypothermia had worse outcomes and increased mortality than patients in the normothermia group. So in terms of the main findings, clearly a negative result here. So where does this leave clinical practice and do research questions remain, do you think, in this area? Well, the authors believe that the most important finding is that of the different outcomes in the subgroups of patients with diffuse brain injury and those who had surgical removal of the hematoma. And they say that there is little basis for further testing of hypothermia as a neuroprotective strategy in patients with diffuse brain injury but that the role of hypothermia in patients who have surgically evacuated haematomas should be tested further. What do the comment authors have to say? Well, the comment authors believe that a 48-hour cooling period might be too short to show a beneficial effect on outcome, and that rather than using a standardised protocol in which the duration of hypothermia is limited to 48 hours for every patient, more personalised management in which the depth and duration of hypothermia is better targeted to each patient's needs should be tested in further studies. Finally, Helen, just tell us about the Leading Edge editorial. This is about rare neurological diseases this month. Why is it important to know about this area? Well, in this editorial, we wanted to highlight efforts to prioritise awareness and knowledge of rare neurological diseases in Europe. And the springboard for this was the endorsement of a declaration of principles on rare neurological diseases 
which was spearheaded by the Brains for Brain Foundation in the European Parliament. And the aim of this Declaration of Principles was to increase the awareness of these rare diseases. And the bottom line really is that collectively, rare diseases are not actually rare. There are an estimated 5,000 to 8,000 diseases that are classified as rare, but collectively they're not rare, and about 5 to 8% of the population is thought to be affected by a so-called rare disease. And by encouraging cooperation and networking amongst researchers in different countries, the hope is that research into rare neurological diseases will increase, which should eventually lead to improvements in early diagnosis and treatment. Excellent. Many thanks indeed, Helen. Those are some of the highlights from the February 2011 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Thanks for listening. See you next month.